Last time on Stuck in the Middle Kingdom with you, we looked at the crazy and slightly less crazy manifestations of Maoism, mainly in developing countries during the Cold War. Mao really struck a chord with those militants who were emerging from colonial rule and had this grand choice between capitalism and communism to make. But as we saw with John Lennon, Mao also had his admirers in the developed West. These people weren't throwing off the yoke of the motherland or battling against a fascist dictator, although some would presumably say they were. In the developed capitalist societies of the West, good old Marxism-Leninism would appear to be more appropriate than Maoism, with the latter's extra emphasis on the peasantry and anti-imperialism. And yet for a good while in the late 60s and 70s, Maoism shone through. Why is that? Well, let's have a look. After coming out on top after World War II, America got itself wrapped up in numerous wars around the world in an attempt to thwart Soviet expansion and influence. The wars didn't go well for America. Korean War ended in stalemate, and the Vietnam War dragged on until it became a spectacle of humiliation and moral redundancy for the USA. The counterculture emerged as America's conscience, and change was in the air. You don't need a weatherman to know which way the wind blows, as Bob Dylan sang in Subterranean Homesick Blues. Vietnam was the most well-covered war in history, beamed into American living rooms. People stopped supporting it. For leftists, it was all the proof you needed to show that America was the new imperialist behemoth, asserting itself at will and further oppressing the exploited peoples of the world. But that bastion of really existing socialism, the Soviet Union, wasn't all that convincing to the emerging new left. George Orwell's 1984 An Animal Farm had poked holes in Stalin's legacy and the Soviet promise of a utopian future. And then the post-Stalin, Soviet Union, was deemed to be revisionist and imperialist, at least where die-hard commies were concerned. So hard lefties looked to China. Mao may have kicked off the Cultural Revolution in the 1960s just to purge his enemies and shore up his own power, but on the face of it, to someone predisposed to believe the ideological justification, the Cultural Revolution looks like the ultimate commitment to the cause, the unfinished business of a revolution already won. And Mao's project was something that the students and intellectuals in the West could relate to. They could do revolution without being a factory worker. As the helmsman had said to his marauding students, to rebel is justified. The counterculture in the USA and the swinging 60s in the UK was a rebellion. But in the words of Timothy Leary, the method was turn on, tune in, drop out. Seeing through the superficiality of consumer capitalism was the name of the game and opening one's mind. Hunter S. Thompson described it as the inevitable victory over the forces of old and evil. Not in any mean or military sense. We didn't need that. Our energy would simply prevail. But for some, this form of rebellion was too bourgeois. Sitting around tripping or debating isms is all very good for the white suburban baby boomers, but for the black community, it was a different story. The Jim Crow laws which had segregated the population of the American South along racial lines were formally ended by the federal government in 1964 with the Civil Rights Act, ten years after the Supreme Court ruled that segregation in schools was unconstitutional. But inequality remained. Police brutality was common. 
Black Americans were drafted into the army at higher rates than white Americans, although they often didn't meet the educational standards required by the military. The army rectified that by lowering the standards. Muhammad Ali's refusal to be drafted in 1966 led to his boxing titles being stripped and a prison term being handed down to him, and he only avoided a trip to the big house on appeal. While all this was going on in America, a black civil rights leader called Robert F. Williams was living in exile in China. In 1962, his book had been published, Negroes with Guns. If anything is going to get you on the FBI's radar, then a book with that name is certainly likely to. But the FBI already had concerns about Williams promoting violence, despite him claiming that he only meant self-defense in a society fundamentally weighted against the black community. By the time his book came out, Williams was already out of the country. Things had come to a head after an incident in 1961, when he stopped a white couple from getting swept up in a potentially dangerous protest in his neighborhood. Their time at his house was portrayed as a kidnap by those crafty police. The FBI smelt blood, and Williams went to Cuba. After a while, he was invited to China, one of America's Cold War enemies. During the Cold War, a global battle for hearts and minds was taking place, and culture was the arena in which it was occurring. One example of this is explored in Patrick Radden Keefe's Wind of Change podcast, which explores how the CIA may have bombed the USSR, the 1980s power ballad, and just perhaps changed the course of history. Something I learned while listening to this podcast was that, in the 1950s, the American jazz megastar Louis Armstrong was cynically dispatched by the American government to Africa to win them over to the capitalist West to counter the Soviet anti-American propaganda which, quite accurately, reminded people that American values didn't work if you had the wrong skin colour. Well, Satchmo's success was proof the American dream was alive and well for everyone, no? Maybe, maybe not, but Armstrong was conflicted about being used in this way, to trumpet American values, excuse the pun, when he knew full well the reality of racism back home. Nina Simone never would have put up with that, so when she went to perform in Africa, it was kept secret from her who was pulling the strings. The truth only came out after she was dead. The sole pioneer who had called her country the United Snakes of America and renounced her citizenship had unwittingly been part of a CIA propaganda operation. When a new generation of black activists emerged in the 1960s, Mao found common cause with these radicals across the sea in the belly of the beast America. He made a statement in August 1963 supporting the American Negroes in their just struggle against racial discrimination by US imperialism, and directly referenced Robert F. Williams' exile, the guy who fled America after being accused of kidnapping that white couple. Mao said, I call on the workers, peasants, revolutionary intellectuals, enlightened elements of the bourgeoisie, and other enlightened persons of all colours in the world, whether white, black, yellow or brown, to unite to oppose the racial discrimination practised by US imperialism and support the American Negroes in their struggle against racial discrimination. Mao's being as canny as ever, 
By the end of the month, Martin Luther King Jr. was giving his I Have a Dream speech in front of 250,000 people in Washington. And not long after, Robert F. Williams was getting his picture snapped in Beijing, peering approvingly into a little red book alongside Mao himself. The chairman knew which way the wind was blowing. In 1966, the Black Panther Party was founded in Oakland, California by Bobby Seale and Huey P. Newton, calling for employment, housing, and the end to police brutality for African Americans. They raised funds by selling little red books and used the money in social programs, providing food, education, and testing for diseases in the community. This is all good Maoism, responding to the people's material needs. They also armed themselves and went out on patrols, pointing to gun laws which allowed unconcealed carry in public places. This public display of armed black people caught the attention of the police, and also the state. With the support of the NRA, of all people, California passed the Mulford Act to restrict, yes restrict, gun freedoms, and armed panthers were arrested protesting the bill at the state capitol. By this time, the FBI were engaged in a program called COINTELPRO, specifically designed to target and undermine left-wing groups. J. Edgar Hoover named the Black Panthers as America's biggest internal threat. One of the new black activists on their radar was Fred Hampton, a Maoist from Chicago who joined the Black Panthers and established a rainbow coalition to unite leftist groups behind a common revolutionary purpose. Malcolm X and Martin Luther King Jr. were also on the FBI's watch list, despite the latter making non-violence a central part of his activism. In the murky world of FBI spycraft, it's unclear how much blood the US government has on its hands for the assassinations that ended these men's lives. Malcolm X was murdered in 65, King in 68, pouring fuel on the sparks of the black power movement, rather than dousing the flames. Riots broke out across the country after King was assassinated. Undeterred, the FBI stuck with the campaign, and that meant Fred Hampton's days were numbered. Meanwhile, Things were heating up in Paris, that other epicenter, alongside Boston in the US, of Western revolutions. And Paris had the intellectual dimension too. In late 1966, the philosopher Louis Althusser wrote a long article, although he left it unsigned, called On the Cultural Revolution. He writes that an ideological revolution is necessary if you're going to be serious about your communist revolution. But he warns against judging it from such a removed distance at least until a political and theoretical analysis has taken place. Either way, communists would be wise to pay attention, says he. So in May 1968, conflict between the students and the authorities at the University of Paris led to the campus being shut. Angry students were gunning for the university, the police, and the state. As the days went on, the younger students and older workers joined in, and the protests became more violent. Police brutality created sympathy for the protesters, and workers went on strike. But that sympathy was lost when regular people discovered how naively idealistic the students were about the society they wanted to build. The French Communist Party were also troubled by the students' Maoist radicalism, and simply wanted President Charles de Gaulle to resign and hold an election. De Gaulle himself wasn't sure at all how serious this was all getting. Amidst the turmoil, he fled the Elysee, stating that no one attacks an empty palace. For six hours, no one knew where the president was, and France held its breath. He showed up in Germany and had to be coaxed back. Ultimately, once de Gaulle was convinced that the army wasn't going to join the movement, 
he called a legislative election, and the situation was diffused. The president didn't expect much from the election that he'd reluctantly called, but his party sailed to victory. Everyone else lost seats. The French had turned up their nose at this particular revolution. However, many left-wing intellectuals in France became more drawn to the Maoist strand of communist thought. The journal Telquel published figures such as Michel Foucault, Pierre Boulet, Jacques Derrida, and Roland Barthes, the latter of whom was one of a group of writers from the magazine to visit China in 1974. And did they like what they found in Mao's China? Well, Telquel renounced Maoism in 1976. So that tells you something about that. The same cannot be said for Huey P. Newton, one of the founders of the Black Panther Party, who visited China in September 1971 and met Zhou Enlai and Jiang Qing, the angel and the devil sitting on Mao's shoulders. But he didn't visit the chairman himself. Still, Newton was beaming with wonder about the country that had hosted him for ten days, writing later that, quote, I felt absolutely free for the first time in my life. He was struck by the way the authorities treated him with respect in contrast to his experience back home. But the fact that he was greeted by crowds yelling in support of the Black Panthers didn't seem to awaken him to the fact that his trip was an orchestrated one. Maybe there was another side to China in the midst of the Cultural Revolution. He probably didn't come across Red Guards in Guangxi burying people alive or eating supposed counter-revolutionaries, for example. Before leaving China, Newton advised the Chinese that while their development is progressing wonderfully, they might want to guard against all that pollution that their new factories are kicking out. Mao, of course, was more of the man-must-conquer-nature variety of dictators, because that's literally one of his quotes. And, of course, the rest is history. Huey P. Newton, like the other Black Panther Party founder Bobby Seale, and their spiritual godfather Robert F. Williams, survived the countercultural decade. Their colleague from Chicago, Fred Hampton, did not. Early in the morning of December the 4th, 1969, local police burst into Hampton's apartment in Chicago, opened fire. One of the Chicago Panthers, William O'Neill, had been an FBI informant and had relayed information about the apartment's layout back to the police. He later denied being the person who had drugged Hampton that morning. But either way, Hampton was out of it when the police found him lying on a mattress, and they shot him in the head. Other Panthers who were there were injured and arrested, although charges were soon dropped. Of the almost 100 shots that rang out in that apartment, only one had come from a Black Panther. It came from Mark Clark's shotgun, as he reacted to a bullet entering his chest, and it went directly into the roof. The police's attempts to make out that the Black Panthers had been instigators of the violence quickly fell apart. The scene in the apartment told its own tale. Once again, the civil rights movement and the American political left had all their fears and claims about the US government vindicated. In response to the death of Fred Hampton, alongside the revelation that American troops had massacred hundreds of Vietnamese civilians in My Lai, Another anti-war group called the Weather Underground literally declared war on the USA, and they meant it. Originally called the Weathermen, inspired by the don't-need-a-weatherman-to-know-which-way-the-wind-blows Dylan lyric, they were a radical offshoot of the student movement within the New Left, and went underground. After three members of the group were killed, 
when a bomb they were preparing accidentally exploded. The Weather Underground used intense self-criticism, straight from the Maoist playbook, to root out bourgeois individualism among their ranks. They rejected monogamy for much of the same reason, and in the name of anti-imperialism went on to commit violent acts throughout the 70s, bombings, arson, targeting soldiers, even bombing the US Capitol and the Pentagon. The Vietnam War ended in April 1975, leaving the anti-war movement with no war to be anti-against. But the countercultural movement was already being gutted, not just by the excesses of an era which tend to symbolically define its end in 1969, the death of Fred Hampton, the Manson murders, and the Altamont Free Concert in California, which descended into violence and chaos and death. The late 60s and early 70s was a bloodbath for the defining culture of the age. Apart from the deaths of the biggest names in the struggle against racism, Malcolm X and Martin Luther King Jr., you had Lenny Bruce dead in 1966, Che Guevara dead in 67, Neil Cassidy in 68 and the writer who immortalised him as Dean Moriarty in On the Road, Jack Kerouac, shuffling off a year later, in 69. Then Jimi Hendrix and Janis Joplin in 1970 and Jim Morrison in 71, all three of them just 27 years old. The average age of all these deaths is just 35. To pour salt in the wound, the Beatles broke up in late 1969, which became public in 1970. The times, once again, were a-changing. In Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, written in 1971, Hunter S. Thompson famously reflected, You can go up on a steep hill in Las Vegas and look west, and with the right kind of eyes, you can almost see the high watermark. You can almost see the high watermark. That place where the wave finally broke and rolled back. Sticking with the cultural reference points, that Dylan line about the weatherman still rings true. You don't need one to know which way the wind blows. It's just the wind doesn't always blow in one direction. Before long, capitalism co-opted the entire era into a suite of products and middle America consumed it along with the rest of their endless supply of stuff. The CND Peace logo, Che Guevara and his beret, the Black Power Fist, these can all be found in your local Walmart, on some product or other. The first electric guitar that Bob Dylan played live in 1965 sold for almost a million dollars in 2013 at auction, and the Mao paintings that Andy Warhol made in the early 70s have gone at auctions for tens of millions of dollars. In 1979 and 1981, Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan were voted into power in their respective countries, denoting the start of the neoliberal order for the Western world. Free markets, privatisation, deregulation, and societies understood as individuals, concerned primarily with self-interest. Socialism, whether you subscribe to the Leninist version or the Trotsky one or the Maoist tendency, it all became an academic issue, despite what those neo-McCarthyites would tell you about Liz Cheney or Bill Gates or whoever they next claim is a big scary communist. When Mao gave up the ghost in 1976, China moved away from their Maoist ideology in favour of what's called socialism with Chinese characteristics, which is basically state-controlled capitalism. China's four cardinal principles are upholding the socialist path, upholding the people's democratic dictatorship, keeping the CCP in power, and hanging on to Marxism-Leninism and Mao Zedong thought. But the reality is a pragmatic, centralised bureaucracy which prioritises the power of the leadership, 
the economy, control over the region, and ensures free speech isn't very free. There have been no real cults of personality in China since Mao, with the most prominent one being Xi Jinping's rather lazy one by comparison. With all the consumerism and competition and the endless trudge of unsatisfying work, there is some appetite for a return to the red in China. But for the most part, China no longer wants the instability that Maoism can bring. Its revolution is over. They just want complete authoritarian control. The party in charge, of course. There have been as many Maoist movements and groups as there are variations of Marxism itself. Some are deeply racist, while others persecute according to class. Some include religious belief, while most are aggressively atheist. Most don't give much value to the life of an individual, because it's the wider revolution that counts. But they don't all have the same targets. It's no surprise that militant groups seeking to liberate their land from colonial oppression have been inspired by Maoism, because it provides principles and strategies. And for a person who is inclined to promote themselves as a godlike leader, over a group or a country, Maoism has many ingredients which appeal. An analysis of the problem, a path to follow in a struggle against it, and a set of policy ideas once power is seized. It's very powerful in the right hands, and even more so given the right circumstances. The instability of decolonization, or when a particular group can become an easy target. But once a prospective demagogue has gained enough support and established themselves as a leader of a movement or a country, they're just another dictator, ruling the roost however they see fit. There are still a lot of leftists who cling to Maoism. They go online and have meme wars with the Stalinists and the trots. Sometimes they have a soft spot for North Korea, its apparent purity, its complete rejection of America. And I think it's the critique of the American system and American hegemony, not an altogether unreasonable critique, which leads people to romanticise alternative systems, especially those underpinned by the beautiful theory. I suspect something similar happens for radical Islamist converts. There's an American Maoist on YouTube called Black Red Guard. He's also the chair of the People's St. Louis and a podcaster. And he states that Mao was the greatest 20th century revolutionary precisely because he rejected the dogmatism of communism and made the theory work in practice, thereby liberating China. Undoubtedly, Mao is the most successful communist ever if you consider the modern Chinese state to be his legacy. But that's not always how China is seen. Maoists usually hate Dungists, and it was Deng Xiaoping who made modern China what it is, not Mao. Indeed, Black Red Guard laments the China of now as revisionist. Leftists like him pretty much never like things which actually exist, preferring instead the imaginary potential of a grand idea not yet put into practice. So if not the legacy of millions pulled out of poverty in a country which can genuinely stand up to America, what is the appeal of Mao? Well, for Black Red Guard, it's because a non-white rebel stuck it to the Americans. To quote him directly, Mao was, and let me check my notes, Mao was a bad motherfucker. That's why we like him. I started these couple of episodes with a word on John Lennon how he toed and froed on how he felt about Mao. Well, in the midst of this crazy time, that's not unreasonable. But before Lenin died, he'd shifted his position again. And he didn't support Mao or anyone committing violence or forbidding any individual's ability to think what they wanted to think or say what they wanted to say or live the way they wanted to live. At the end of the day, 
John was an old school hippie. Freeing your mind doesn't mean filling it up with some other guy's ideas. Next time on Stuck in the Middle Kingdom with you, we go from revolutions to resolutions. It's time to go back to the school. It's New Year's, an opportunity to put those arguments and differences at the school behind us and start afresh. <laughs>